0: Supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long. Panasonic Air Conditioning, Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. <laughs> now a ticket temp. Supercars Unforgettable.
1: Before history is written,
0: Bobby Behind the, the
1: it's played. Tinelli, Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Aaron Noon, and welcome again to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, this week's guest is a Bathurst 1000 winner, an Adelaide 500 champion, and the driver of the number eight Brad Jones Racing Holden in the Supercars Championship. That's right, Nick Perkat joins me on the podcast this week. Now, in the first part of our chat, Nick talks about his time at Walkinshaw Racing, capped by that 2011 Bathurst 1000 win alongside Garth Tander, and he opens up on the race that got him on Walkinshaw's radar initially the last Aussie racing cars race of 2006 on the Gold Coast and how he initially wasn't even going to start it. His history could have been so much different. He also talks about making his full-time main game debut with Walkinshaw in 2014 and the Dick Johnson Racing contract that he turned down in the process. Stay tuned for the second part where we ask him your National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions, including our question of the week thanks to Castrol and he tackles our Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Now, this podcast will sound a little different to our usual one-on-one chats as part of the measures we're all taking in the face of COVID-19. So Nick didn't come into V8 Sleuth headquarters as we would usually do. Instead, he was in the comfort and safety of his own home, and we had the chat over the phone line. So here we go. Buckle up. It's time to start part one of Nick Perkat on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Well, I'm sitting in the V8 Sleuth office, and normally I would have our podcast guest sitting uh, across the desk from me, but this world that we currently live in, that's not quite possible, even when our next guest lives in the same city as I do. Nick Perkett is on the phone. He's our latest guest on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken Nicholas. Welcome to the show.
0: Hello, Aaron. How are you?
2: I'm very good. We've got a lot to cover in your career so far. There's um, a whole pile of National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions that have rolled in. Uh, we've oh, yeah. got, uh, a, 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 You know a top 10 shootout. You've, do, you've done a few of those in your time, haven't you?
0: Yeah, I'm a, um, I do enjoy making sure we're in the top 10 shootout, so it's the best lap of any track. You've got to make sure you're in it.
2: Well, you're going to do the motor focus <laughs> top 10 shootout that we do here on VXLITS. Oh, so uh, I'm sure you've heard this before. It's a fancy <laughs> form of word association. That's coming up. A little bit later. Now, I wanted to start with you. I've known you for a very, very long time. Tell me about the Aussie race car race that launched you into the minds of the team at Walkenshaw Racing. Am I right in remembering that you went from last in a 40-something car field in eight laps in the rain and won it? Is, is that the recollection that's right?
0: That is correct. It's, um, it's actually kind of a funny story, the way that all happened. We, we came into that last round... Was our first year of car racing, um, like at a national level. Turns out last round leading it, um, so we were on track to be the first rookie to ever win that category as a, as a rookie and, uh, had an absolute disastrous weekend between me crashing and qualifying at the Gold Coast circuit and some electrical dramas from memory. It meant we, yeah, we came off absolutely dead ringer. So 42nd or 44th, one of them at the Gold Coast, um, it was obviously a tight track and then it started raining, um. And actually, the, a few hours before the race, me and Dad and um, Ian, the guy who helped us out as a, a mechanic, we actually contemplated not racing it because we didn't have budget um, to damage the car. Um, we're coming off, yeah, outside the top forty, and um, <laughs> at a track like that, and you know we'd already had a disastrous weekend, and we actually said, "Oh, maybe that'll just be us. We'll just park her up, and we won't do the last race. It's not, it's not worth it." Um, winning the championship is gone um still gonna finish second um so we actually all but decided not to not to do that last race and uh then it started raining and i said well, i think me and dad were like no we probably should we'll race if it's raining we'll race um so then so it's raining just before the race strap into the car and uh, dad literally hands me around and he's like we haven't done anything to the car for the wet because we didn't think we we're going to race but I'll give you this rag that I've just come across. If the screen focus up, just your long arm, you can reach the window and give it a wipe so you can see. And I'm like, yeah, right. So that's just fired me out into this race with this rag. Obviously you can't see the start lights back there. And yeah, we've come through from outside the top 40 to win it by like a fair margin. And then, um, the very next morning, because I think the Aussie racing car race was done, must have been Saturday afternoon. Um, Very next morning, I had a phone call from Craig Wilson, um, who obviously was running the whole operation of Walkinshaw Racing and the whole racing team and HSE dealer team uh, back then. Um, And yeah, he was Tom Walkinshaw's man in Australia. He gave me a ring and said he wanted to sit down and catch up. And um, I actually didn't know who he was because he wasn't really... Back then, you know, there was no social media here you weren't watching the coverage. He, he wasn't really on because people like Rob, Rob Crawford would be representing HRT in the pit lane stuff. So I wasn't really sure it was. And I told dad and he told me, he told me I was stupid and someone was playing prank calling me. <laughs> <laughs> and He goes, mate, this isn't real. Like it's not a thing. And I'm like, we're meant to fly out on Sunday morning. And I said, I think we should just go to the back of the pits and see what happens. So we, um, we go and, uh, Next thing it, Craig Wilson standing there. We meet Craig, and I met John Kelly, who was um, obviously um, the Kellys had ownership in, I think HSV Dealer Team from memory how it all worked. And um, yeah, we sat down, and they said we want to contract you as a junior driver, and what well, was you know put you on our put you with us. And I think at the time they already had Taz Douglas um, doing some stuff with them, and basically yeah, they um um put me in, and um, I don't think Taz drove the next year, and we went into the Australian Formula Ford Championship, so that was um, how it all started, 2006, it was um, literally, we were done with racing, and I was just going to be living, well, staying in Adelaide, working for my my old man as a mechanic, and within the space of 24 hours, I had a a contract in front of me to drive for the factory-holding racing team as a a junior, which was, yeah, unbelievable, so I think it all kind of um, was signed off around... Phillip Island that year when Rick won in that very big controversial manner.
2: Yeah, which people are still upset about.
0: Yeah, they're still upset. And it actually delayed it. So me and Dad got really nervous because we went to Phillip Island um, to watch on the Sunday and meet with Craig again and sign off on the contract. And then all that happened. (laughs) And (laughs) my contract was actually signed outside the doors at Crown upstairs where they were holding the hearing. I was signing my contract with Craig outside those doors before we had to fly back to Adelaide. So there you go. That's how it all, all started. It's a cool story,
2: and it's one of those ones that had the world gone differently and you didn't do that last race in the rain. Who knows where you could have been?
0: Um, I know what I've been doing. I would, Dad would be retired if he would trust me. Well, maybe he would trust me. He would have probably handed over the reins of, it to, of the workshop, his um, workshop in Adelaide, and um, I'd probably be there in some capacity running that or... Um, yeah, working for him—that would, would be that me, I reckon. Um, so yeah, it was different? No one would have known who I was, and uh, it would have just been another young bloke that had a crack and went back to normal life. I guess
2: could have been featuring in a "Where Are They Now" story in 2020, perhaps somewhere. Uh, the track. <laughs> hey, tell me, what was your first go in a supercar when you first put your bum in in one of those cars? I guess it was a ride day, a test day. What was the what was the first one it, you had a crack in?
0: So. Craig had a thing, a rule with me, um, that I never moved up or got to drive the next car until I won what I was driving, like the current car I was driving. So at that time it was Formula Ford. So I was driving, I did Formula Ford for two and a half years with, or three years with, um, walk and Draw branding on the car. And I never got to drive a supercar at a ride day or anything. And I actually went away to all the ride days, test days and race meetings as a, a floater. Like I'd just be sweeping the floors and stuff for the dealer team. Um, or cleaning gas car actually, um, so that was my job basically. I was um, like the apprentice for um, the, two, the two main mechanics on Tander's car the year he won the championship. So that was me, uh, but I never got to drive it. I used to sit in it to bleed the brakes, <laughs> um, and I never got to drive it until I won the Formula Ford Championship. Um, so I think the first time I drove it was the end of. 2009 at the HRT ride day and for anyone that's listening who's been to one of them they are huge like back in the full heyday of HRT the Guilardevo Garth um I think was it Fabs and Reynolds or Tomo was kind of the era those ride days were absolutely massive they'd have four cars running plus the ride car um and at the end of the day Rob Crawford said to me uh oh, you've been driving around all day in the the T2 car um Oh, not all day, I'd done, I had think I'd done like two sessions, have a crack in the race car. And I thought, how good. Dad was there, he came to watch, first ride day. And I think it was Will's car, and I was living with Will at the time, Will and Mariana, and obviously used to catch up with you quite a lot. Um, yeah, and I drove out of the pit, I thought, this was pretty wild, in I hate car. And then, uh, I think it was my first or second flyer, I came into Honda, hairpin at Phillip Island, so quite fast. And, put my foot on the brake and it went to the floor because I didn't know what brake knockoff was um, and I'd run the ripple strip through turn three um, up to the hairpin and I didn't realise I had knocked the front pad the back and you know, I was quite young and had zero idea I'd never driven one I was just out there for a bit of fun I ended up backwards in the gravel trap and they had to come tow me out
2: great impression um, great
0: impression and again for the people that have worked with Rob Crawford and especially when he was running HRT I don't quite I can't oh, it's hard to put into words how scared I was A Very to return to the pits to Rob, I knew Will would be okay because he would explain to me what happened um, and I got through all that okay and they explained what had gone on and I obviously just kept saying sorry and tried to understand it probably looked like I was about to cry to be honest because um, I thought I was going to be Instantly had my contract pulled away from me, um, and then I'd never forget the phone call on my home from Craig Wilson saying, "Ah, oh, I hear you've had a little bit of an off today." Um, so yeah, that was my first experience of a Supercar—one <laughs> <laughs> you'd never forget.
2: <laughs> no, uh, what?
0: So what's this? Two thousand nine. End of two thousand nine. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah.
2: Oh, you've come a long way in the last decade. Hey, tell me about that first. <laughs> tell me about the first race. Twenty ten. Uh, Phillip Island 500. You shared the Bundaberg Red Car with Andrew Thompson. Yep. Ryan, Ryan Briscoe was coming for Bathurst, but he was unavailable for Phillip Island back in the days when Phillip Island hosted the pre-Bathurst 500k race. Uh, so it was a bit of a one-off for you, but you you were kind of part of the family for a few years there at Welcome Shores. Anyway, do you remember getting that phone call to say, "Righto, kid, you're gonna you're gonna get a go"? Yeah, that so,
0: yeah, was 2010. Um, so I've been with them since 2007. So I knew that was a positive of my whole relationship with Walking and any time I had to drive of their cars, I I knew everyone so well. They were my family. I moved to, from Adelaide to Melbourne to drive for this team. I lived close to the workshop. I was there every single day. Um, so, yeah, to get that call was pretty left field. Um, I think I was just actually at the workshop and uh, uh, Craig Wilson grabbed me and said, oh, we want you to drive at Phillip Island because Briscoe can't make it. <laughs> I thought, uh, okay. I've literally done three races in a supercar in Super 2 um, in a car that has a H-pattern gearbox and nothing like the current cars. Um, but obviously, you're not going to say no. It was never even considered. But yeah, so me and Tomo um, uh, drove together and yeah, the Winton test, that was really cool. That was fun. Um, and then the race meeting, we, we definitely struggled a bit. Um, and yeah, Thompson was having a a rough year with that whole deal. So it was an interesting way to be thrown in um, because, yeah, you know, we weren't really competitive. Um, I think he had a, had a crash in one of his r- sprint races. So I kind of lost for our race and yeah, it was, a, it was a learning curve and it's definitely a good experience. And the good thing again, like I was pretty close to um, Tomo cause he was really good friends with Will and we lived together. And I think there might've been a crossover where he lived with us too. So um, it was all very easy. He, he side, lived think, with me. So.
2: Andrew Thompson no, lived I with was me you. when he drove for Bundaberg Road in 2010 when he That's came to Melbourne. Right. There was, there was a spare there? room and Gavin lived at, well, it wasn't even Sleuth HQ then because Sleuth wasn't a, wasn't a thing in 2010. But, yeah, yeah exactly. anyway, there you go.
0: There you go. Um, so, yeah, that was um, it was good. It was good to do it with people that I was comfortable around. But, yeah, definitely we did set the world on fire. And um, it was actually interesting because when I look back at that, I think we qualified both close to last. And then the next year I rocked up with Garth in the main car. And uh, <laughs> no, I know I where you're going here. I actually, I was the fastest walking show driver of all of them, and the only thing that changed was the car I was in, the driver I was with. So, um, yeah, it was it was interesting, uh, but it, yeah, probably makes a bit of sense why Tomo had a bit of a tough year because, um, yeah, the the way the gar set up his car was um, quite a lot different and quite a lot faster. It turns out.
2: Hey, we jump around all over the place with this podcast in terms of the topics we cover. Um, Sitting down to write some notes the other day, what's the best rumour that you've heard about yourself?
0: About myself? One that made you you
2: sound really good or
0: one that made you sound really bad? I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, What rumours have I had? I've had scandalous rumours where people think I'm doing something dodgy off track, but I don't think... (laughs) The only rumours I've ever heard about myself is maybe... Um, being linked into like Tickford back in the day and stuff like that, but I think I don't think I really listened if there was stuff getting around, and everyone very much knew that I was long term at WR. Um, I think the only the wildest one of recent time was probably going me going back to WR for a couple of years ago, but that didn't eventuate. Was it a possibility? It was. It was. Yeah. it got close.
2: Well, then it's not. It's not a rumor
0: then, is it? Well, no, people kind of speculated it, but no one knew that there was actually chats going on. <laughs> and, and when was this? Was this
2: pre-BJR? Uh,
0: no, we had it that um, when I was before we were Fred with Brad. Um, only recently there was very, very minor chat about who would be partnering with Chaz. That's um, so very recent, but yeah, we. I think the more the entertainment of the whole chat between. Myself and then was like, "Be cool to bring me back in to that fold," because yeah, there is definitely unfinished business with myself and the walking shores Because you know, without them backing me all those years, they've probably put millions into me to get me through my junior racing and Super Two and Porsche and stuff like that. It would have been cool to, you know, the fairy tale scenario for me to go back there and race with them would have been quite cool. But yeah, it was it was a very short lived conversation, to be honest. and um they were happy with which way they were going and I was happy with where I was going. So it was just, yeah, I think more of a passing conversation But anything could have happened in this day and age. You never say never in this uh, mad
2: cape that we're in. Um, So many topics to run through. We've got a range of questions. I'll I'll get to them a little bit later on. Uh, But you mentioned there about the possibilities of, uh, I think you probably had it in your mind that you were a long, long, I mean, you were a uh, long-term Walkinshaw driver from the time that you signed up with them to the time that you, Uh, had your your full-time year in 2014 and and you ended up... Was it disappointing that you ended up having to move on from there because it had been your your family for so many years and they had put so much into you in the, what, seven years beforehand?
0: Yeah. Honestly, the... um, Oh, it's hard to (laughs) explain how shattering the conversation was uh, losing my drive at WR. um, And I know it's... I didn't lose it from poor performance or um, anything like that. You know, like the back end of that 2014 year, I think you were feeding me stats saying you're actually one of the leading point scorers for the back end of the year besides Wink Cup. So <laughs> it wasn't a performance thing. I think I finished eleventh or twelfth in the championship as a rookie and super close to being a top ten with podiums. But to I think the thing that always stick with me. Um, The family, the Walking Shore family, Martine and Ryan, well, Tom originally, did so much for me to get me in. Um, I found that pretty out of it. It blew my mind that they were willing to give it up that easily um, and not fight harder to have Charlie have me as his driver in 2015. And I found that super late in the piece. And to be honest, I don't know if you'll like me saying it, but the only reason I found out when I found out is because Sladey gave me a heads up um, that he thought something was going on. So, yeah, if, to be honest, if I didn't get a little bit of info from him, <laughs> I then probably would have been too late to get the LDM stuff going. And Yeah, it's just very disheartening to think that the family that got me into the sport, we won about Bathurst, you know, my contract, contracts are all geared around me being in the HRT car come 2016. It was, well, That was a chat anyway. There was nothing ever in writing, but it was always, yep, we're gearing to have you in that car. Um, For them just to, you know, it felt like they gave up and got rid of me. But it's hard to say that also because management had changed. You know, we'd had Steve Hallam, we'd had Mike Henry, then we had Adrian Burgess. So, like, those guys weren't there when I got signed. So it was, I had to look at it pretty, I had to keep my eyes pretty open and be like, not blame anyone, but it was just super upsetting that the people that brought me in could flick me so easily, especially with no reason of my own. It was just down to sponsorship money. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a very, uh, I think I probably did cry. I was very, I think it brought tears to my eyes the moment I found that it happened. And um, luckily, I had some good people in my corner with Simon McNamara and had Lucas there. And um, we put a deal together literally the day I got told. By that afternoon, I had the deal with Lucas done and we went racing.
1: The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free, cause here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't, they'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500, book now at Ticketek
2: let's go to another day where you mentioned about tears, but let's go happy tears. Did you cry when you won Bathurst in 2011? Um, I actually
0: don't know. I think I just... (laughs) I remember because Walkinshaws, we used to stay at the uni right near Bathurst. And from that day, I remember opening the blinds and looking because my room, my dorm room happened to face the track. I remember looking at it going, please be kind to me today. And then I remember getting back there and looking, just looking at it and just staring, thinking, what the hell has just happened? Um, Anyway, the key things I remember from that day, obviously, um, oh, that weekend, I remember, I think we qualified provisional pole, maybe, or top three, and then there was maybe rain, and we started further back than we thought we should have. Um, And then, (laughs) there's no feeling like standing in pit lane as a rookie to that race Seeing Garth driving towards you in the HRT car, and you about to get in and do your first stint—that <laughs> like was mind blowing—and I never will ever forget the radio call from our our engineer, who's now Reynolds engineer, um, just questioning the lap times I was doing. <laughs> in a good <laughs> way or a bad days. way? It was a very bad way. Like, hey, you reckon you can go a bit quicker out there? Because I was so scared to even lock a wheel um, that day. I think I just under it so much in the first five or six laps of my first stint. I then really had a little bit of self-talk and go, you know, get, get your head in the game. And, um, you know, we spent the whole race racing and the two triplet cars, which was pretty cool. And um, I also remember that day, besides borderline crying, looking at the mountain at the end of it, I think brushing the wall, definitely. Just the wall and then the... Um, relief when I gave it the little wobble to make sure the watch was all still attached. That was probably the moment I realised that it was going to be a kind day and the rest from there is um, the history of Garth holding off lounds and the photos and the footage of me looking pale about to pass out. <laughs> but one thing Garth did say to me that day as we got to the podium was enjoy this. This is something you'll never ever experience again being your first win at Bathurst. And half a chance to never experience a win there again. So um, that moment, there's one thing Garth ever said to me that will always stick with me. And I actually, you know, I said the same thing to um Ollie Gavin. I'm like, you've been on the Mon podium, but this is very cool for what we do down under. So um, that they are words that I'll always remember from Garth that day. So it um, was, yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have borderline had tears of joy when I left the hotel. That's okay.
2: You're allowed to you're, yep. you're allowed to let the uh, the emotions roll. Now, I've got to ask you: Have you heard the Garth Tander episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast?
0: I have seen. I've listened to most of it, and I've seen the headline that came from. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so, for those who haven't listened, you can go through our back catalogue and have a listen because it was a great episode where we talked about a whole pile of things. And 2011 Bathurst did uh, come up in that um, discussion that we had here at the office one day. He went into bat for you big time um, because he's pretty uh, – there's a clear feeling out there that Mark Scaife feels that you were kissed on the proverbial to uh, win that race that day, and I think Garth stood up for you in that episode. Uh, You've heard it. What's your take on that whole scenario?
0: Yeah, I still, to this day, I'm not sure why Scaife, even before I became – in The main series, and just never really, you <laughs> know, <laughs> um, we never had a run in. Um, I never forget the first time I was on track with him. Um, I thought to myself, holy shit, I'm actually on track with Mark Scafe, like this guy I've looked up to my whole life. Well, he was one of the guys I looked up to. Um, but you know, yeah, I think there was a lot in the background of that because I think if he won with Craig, he probably would have got another, another. Go at Bathurst the following year.
2: Um, well, he was on his way out because he was joining the commission to chair the commission, so that was his last Bathurst. So, of ah, course, that was his last yeah. go at I it. And of course,
0: there and that was pointless.
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and you were driving for the team that he had departed. Uh, he wanted to win one more. Uh, you'd hit the wall once, got away with it. He probably feels that he was a bit slight, but I think Garth. Uh, pointed out too that perhaps there was a reason why the 888 car stacked behind the Wink-Up Thompson car yeah. all day because there was a mistake made he, in the in the first stint.
0: Yeah, and he, um, I'm pretty sure that year he really had lower back problems from memory and he actually couldn't do that many laps or he couldn't run double stints. There was other things that were going on. I remember definitely chat around Scafie having um, back pain and stuff like that, so Craig did run for the work. But yeah, if he didn't lock the wheel, like I said, in that first stint or whatever it was, they would have had priority and their day could have been different. But, yeah, like, I'm... I don't know. I think I used, it used to upset me a few years ago that Mark was so against a young bloke getting a win. Um, probably forgets that he was a young bloke and got a few of his wins um, as the young bloke <laughs> over his career at the tracks. So, yeah, it's, it's funny. And we've never actually spoken about it. Um, he... Uh, yeah, we just do our thing. But it's, it is kind of ironic because my dad could vouch for this because we used to go to adelaide 500 and or super loop whatever we want to call it football back in the day every single year says to sunday and i'll go and get everyone's signatures and i'll never forget the year i rocked up wearing a arrow go-kart t-shirt and all the drivers doing signing session garth signed it and go it's actually weird he's like i used to have an arrow and we had this. to me it felt like the biggest conversation about go-karts. It would have been a passing comment. <laughs> Made my day. I then got went to get Scafe's signature as the signing session was ending. And he blew me off and said, he, no, nah, sorry, mate, no time. And I was the next kid in line. And from that day, I actually said, I'll never, ever be like that. And he still gives me grief, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> So, yeah, from uh, trying to get things back in about 2004 to um, the Masters in 2011, nothing really changed between me and Mark. (laughs) He just doesn't know it. He might know it now. (laughs) He's all good. Uh, Tell tell me about your
2: evolution, because we we touched on it earlier. Obviously, we, we know the categories you've been through. We know the pathways you've gone through and the success that you've had. I get a... I get an interesting take on all of the guys in supercars, uh, and their growth is not just their their resume and their on-track performance, but their as people as well. Yep. I, I've got an impression that there's an, a, a – and it's different when in the media and in the industry we know you better and, and, and all the other drivers better than, say, the fans do because we spend more time with yep. you. Uh, we, have a, we have the very privileged position of the greater insight. I would get the impression that you've struggled a little bit over the years to find not a comfort in your own skin. I think you're quite comfortable in your own skin, so I'm interested in your take on all this. But uh, where you are placed in the grand rhythm of the world and the way that you react and and deal with it, do you find that you're finding your feet a bit more in who you are as Nick Perkett versus... uh, Nick Perkett, the racing driver, and that results in the the racing driver. It's the maturity and it's the understanding of the way of the world and uh, a bit more of an acceptance of there's only so many things that you can control. It's almost like there's a – I reckon you attempt sometimes to – you are a funny guy. You've got a great sense of humour, but you almost try to use that as a mask on things when they're serious or or awkward. What's your take? I know that's a lot to to roll into one, but I was just really interested in probably more self-assessment than external assessment.
0: Yeah. Well, I think definitely there was a period where I was nervous in front of camera. I actually, watched was watching that Formula forward race that we, you shared the other day from Darwin, and I saw the little interview afterwards, um, Brian, and I was just laughing. I'm like, wow, I can barely talk. Like, <laughs> I was nervous. Um, so it's yeah, I think um, I definitely used to put the walls up. Well, I still probably do, but the walls will go up, and the defense mechanism was not what some people like to see, um, but yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously I worked with a guy called Anthony Clarica, who does pretty much just tunes up all their heads mentally, <laughs> and you know the likes of Winkup, Will, Garth, Rick, um, Reynolds, heaps of us have worked with him, and I worked with him from 2007 until 2014, um, and then I actually stopped during the LDM days, and I realized that my defense mechanism way aggressive (laughs) or too blunt and like general public hate it Um, and you know but I'm the way I am the way my friends know me I'm very black or white it's yes or no Um, so then I realised you know not having him in my corner and stuff like that wasn't working so I actually re-got AK on board and I've been working again with him since 2017 the back end and even, you know, people on the race team at BJR, um, people at the racetrack, they're like, oh, you've changed a lot in the last few years. And I'm like, well, I don't tell them how. But it's, you know, I see a bloke to keep me calmer and deal with certain things in different ways. And, um, you know, it's, for example, back in 2011 when I the car stood on the grid at Phillip Island, when we are off the front row, um, instead of coming down the radio and rage or whatever it was, I actually was so frustrated I bent the rear anti-roll bar adjuster. And we still don't know how I could have done that because it was a machined bit of aluminum, like <laughs> built aluminum. But there's so much adrenaline and stuff, like that was my trigger. I just, I didn't even know I was doing it. And it kept, I stayed calm, but I, there was no camera in front of me <laughs> to give a stupid answer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I've definitely changed my approach or got more comfortable around the whole show. Um, and I think yeah, everyone matures at a different level and I guess everyone, yeah, like, say for a lot of us there, like, I look at my life and I'm like, I should literally be living in Adelaide working at my dad's workshop.
2: Could be a lot worse, man. Um, Could be a lot worse from where you are
0: Correct. Right like, the fact I'm even doing this is fairly unbelievable. So then it makes sense to me why I would probably get a little bit nervous in, in certain situations. Um because I'm just like, wow, how am I actually even here? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think I've definitely changed my the way I go about it. It's just day-to-day life, to be honest. It's um, I'm a lot more relaxed and I control what I can control. And um, if something goes wrong that wasn't me spearing into the side of someone or firing off the road, it's my response when I have a camera in front of me or anyone else is it's probably a lot different to what it used to be. So, yeah, it just took me a little bit to get, I guess, in the right frame of mind or understanding of that. And I think being dragged away from home quite young, um, to live in Melbourne by yourself, driving to the factory racing team, as a junior, you naturally, I think, get a, a sense of arrogance nearly. Mm. Um, and hanging out with, you know, the people I'm hanging out with, they're winning championships and they were so serious. And, um, you know, Garth's a quite a serious person. So I think... Um, I nearly kind of molded into this way, but, which I thought I had to be, but it was wrong. My personality didn't match it. Mm. Um, where, yeah, so I think it's just taking a little bit to find my feet. Um, and that's why I'm trying to do, like a little bit more behind the scenes stuff with my social media. and um, That's why, you know, like I have, say, um, easy one. Timken is a, I'm an ambassador for Timken and they support this program. But the guys at Timken know me very personally. And they just they wish that everyone could know me like that. If that makes sense, <laughs> because yeah. you guys will get a lot different, Nick, to what I got portrayed for a few years there. So um, yeah, I'm trying to show everyone that I'm not just an asshole. <laughs> 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 I'm just I do, I'm a normal human. Uh, but yeah, even to the fact that for a while there, you know, Supertars media wanted a villain, and I was the easy target. So that didn't help me. <laughs> so when,
2: when, when were you the villain? What, what, what era were you playing well, the villain or did you feel like you were being portrayed as the villain?
0: 2016, 2017. Even when we had our little run-in at Gold Coast, I think it was in 17 in the wet. Like I was on my way to congratulate Sladey to go to the podium. And the way that was all broadcast to the fans, is I just brushed Fabian and told him to get F, basically. When I'm actually really good friends with Fabian. And I said to him, I'll oh, come find him in a minute. I'm going to see Slady. You know, that was the... What happened,
2: yeah, but it it doesn't suit the narrative, mate. So,
0: just exactly. (laughs) So, I think there's a few things there that didn't help me, but anyway, is what it is. And hopefully, the fans don't see the the real Nick and just a normal human that knows he's lucky to be doing what he's doing, really.
2: I love the insight that that we get. And I think this program last year and and so far this year, we've had some great chats with people who we've we've known for so many years, but we can peel the onion back as. many people say, a little bit more. Uh, One of the things that we love, and you know we love, because we love the history of the cars, and that's what's built V8 Sleuth overall. We love memorabilia, and we love all that type of stuff. Are you a hoarder? Do you keep your old helmets and your suits? And if so, what's your most prized (laughs) motorsport bit of kit
0: that you've got at home? Um, Yes, I definitely do. My most prized bit of kit is actually a mobile hat from Oh, what year? Lounge in Brock, Bathurst, Torrential Rain, I think happened on like the Thursday or Friday. 1990, I what,
2: 1996. I remember seeing a photo of you that was is a correct. kid shared somewhere. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
0: So that hat, is on my. that was on my head. The blue ran out of it at that event because <laughs> it rained and it was all done by ink back then, obviously. Proper ink. <laughs> um, and that is signed by all my favourite drivers and it's actually now my mum, for my 30th, this is how much it means to me, actually got it Put into like the perfect case and it's in my office and it's got Brock and Lowndes and, um, like Garth on there and Stacey and like, oh, you know, the drivers that I admired so much. That's like my prized possession of my own bit of memorability that I got. But then, yeah, I look at my office right now and I've got the, the important things that are on display. There's, um, like my Bathurst winning helmet and the Bathurst trophy. I've got my, um, 2014 helmet, which has um, you know, podium at Bathurst. And um, it's got branding on there from when um, we lost a very good friend of the families on there. It's got like, you know, a rest in peace tribute on there. So that's a huge part of my life that I always keep. Um, and then all the tr- helmets I have here are all helmets that have been on a podium somewhere and um, in supercars. And then all my formal Ford stuff is actually at mum and dad with the helmet from the championship being at Sonic because they get to keep that. Um but yeah, there's um. I definitely, oh, I've actually started putting my race suits at BJR because <laughs> it got started getting out of control. I uh, couldn't keep all of them, but I do have the mobile suit here because I think that suit's awesome. Um, so yeah, I've definitely got a few bits and pieces of my own stuff that I cherish. Um, and yeah, I'm lucky you got a Clipsal trophy there. Um, and you know, being the last Clipsal 500 spec trophy of that gold one was um, really cool, and they were. Super generous, and actually got a replica made as the the big gold cup, which no one they've not done before. So, um, being a South Australian, winning that event was um, had its perks. <laughs> got yeah. the proper trophy, which was really cool. So um, yeah, there's, there's bits and pieces around the house that um, definitely show what I've done. Um, yeah, you know, I got my Porsche trophy there and stuff. So, but I try not to spray it through my whole house. I'd like to do one little spot. Um, and then mum and dad have got their bit because the former forward, so much family involvement and, you know, they put in as much as they could to make that happen and, you know, alongside Walkinshaw. So, you know, there's stuff like that. But then I'm kind of funny with it, you know, when I, we, the 12 hour this year, um, yeah, obviously we weren't in the outright class, but, um, when we won, on that, I, I gave that trophy and stuff to Ryan McLeod and the, and the whole team because, they work so hard to put those cars together and get them on track, and did such a good job that you know it felt fitting that he got to go home with a trophy. So I don't have that here, and um, a couple other ones that I really love. But um, I'm, I don't know. I, I appreciate when other people put in as much work as anyone to make sure it happens, and they don't get the glory of standing on the, on the podium. So there's a few there that I'd like to have, but um, I know they're a very good home. We'll get back to the podcast
2: in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines, some standing as tall as 260 metres? That's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable-sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year-round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. That 2016 Clipsal 500 win for for Lucas Dumbrell. It was that weird Sunday. It was back in the era where, and I hated this. I really hated this, where they chopped the Saturday race in half, and we had two 125k races, but we had the regular 250 on Sunday. So on Sunday, yeah. the, the the weather turned. The it, the rain poured from pretty much the start of the race. I think it would delayed the start of the race from the top of my memory bank. And then we had this weird thing where, of course, it was going to be a time certain finish. We weren't going to do all the laps. The fuel drop was in play. Now, I tried to do some recollection. I haven't had a chance to dig out the DVD and, and recap some of that race to refresh my brain. But you you were in a position where, at the end, you had your fuel and you could just keep going and you'd met all the criteria to be able to push on and take the chequered flag and, and win the race on the road, no questions asked. But was there, how was it that you could have done that because... Was there a scenario, and someone mentioned this to me a while ago, and I, I've never asked you, I've never followed up, I've never had the reason, but on the podcast, now I do. Did <laughs> you start that race with less fuel than you planned to? Was there a mistake in the fuel that was put in that car which gave you the room in the tank to put more in, which got you in the position? Is that right or is that
0: wrong? To be honest, from that race, like the fuel side, I battled to remember because that was like – that was hard. <laughs> Mentally the that race was like hard to keep the thing on the road. Um, but I do know like, you know, we started towards the back up ninety percent sure. <laughs> we were LDM no offense to, to Lucas, but we didn't never qualify that well and we had some good race results. But um, I know we put fuel in at every opportunity. Um, and you know, there was there is half a chance that Stucky did start us light on fuel. Um, but um, yeah, you know, we actually got to the when that red the last red flag came out, we were seeing pit lane like six. And Stuckey said to me, If you just keep this thing on the road, you're going to finish third. And I said to him, This thing's that fast, we can win. Like, I remember the conversation clearly. And he said, Don't get carried away, just bring it home. We're in a good spot.
2: So, Chris Stuckey is your engineer at the time, and he's still in the game, he's been at a range of different teams over the time. So, I just wanted to jump in and and clarify who you meant by when you said
0: when you said stucky. anyway oh, yeah. carry, carry on yeah so he said uh, you know we're in a really good spot here we're going to be six worst cases to pass fast and I floated the idea of going for the win <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't go down that well and I thought you know what we'll just see what happens and um, you know I remember passing um, I think I got to third and the only two left in front of me was McLaughlin and Lound and I was Driving around at the same lap time as them comfortably because uh, for some reason our car was super fast that day in the wet. Um, so you know we we definitely won due to how, how we got the fuel in, and I, Hannah heart, have no idea how they did it. I always make the joke that you know we we're probably a bit out of mileage on engines, and thing was just running that rich. We were probably just pouring fuel out the exhaust, and we actually had to stop that <laughs> many times. I don't know, um, but yeah, the car was genuinely fast. So that's one thing that kind of annoys me about. The way that race unfolded because of the circumstance, no one ever thinks, Oh, you know, good on him. He actually kept the thing on the island. He came from God knows where and had car speeds. Because at the end of the day, there was a restart. And if I wasn't fast, how did I get such a big gap over Caruso and Gas in that last sprint home? So, um, and obviously, race against Fabs. So, yeah, it's, that was a crazy, crazy day. And you, to be honest, you probably are closer to knowing about the fuel. And if we didn't start with enough in it, um, I'm not 100% sure on that. And I probably just chose to ignore how they did it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, it doesn't matter how it happened. You, you got a trophy and your name's in the record books uh, forever. And you're probably right. I mean, it's one of those ones where at, at first glance, a lot of people will say that's a that was a Bradbury win, that one. That was a yep. you know last man left standing when other things happened. But you you had to be standing on a day like that to be able to uh, be in the position to win a race like that. So the And what was that feeling like? Because you'd won before, but you'd won with a big team. But then you win with the team that is down the end of pit lane, that is the smallest team in pit lane, that has, by that stage, had a lot of dramas, a lot of personnel in and out of both the car and the workshop. Uh, what did that mean for a little team that, you know, I'd, I'd hate to know what the odds would have been that day, uh, for you to win that race because if anyone got on board, they would be well retired and own three islands by now.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, like winning that race for Lucas and that whole crew, like that is pretty wild. Um, first off, you know, I'd known Lucas for so long and um, was really good friends with him before his accident. Um, and when you um, became.
2: Were you part of the Sonic world when he had his yep. accident at Aurum Park? He was my
0: teammate. Yeah, that's right. Myself, it was, wasn't it? Christian yeah. Libom, and Lucas were the three drivers that year at Sonic. Um, yeah, and oh I, yeah, crazy that, that that whole situation. You know, me myself Lucas and Christian hung out most days that whole year and I raced against him in Aussie racing cars and yeah, we're friends, he's hanging at his house and then the accident happened and probably became better friends and you know, there's a there's a, a group of us that were virtually kind of yeah, there's a group of, you know, Jack and Slady and, um, that group that were with him from the moment, you know, it happened. Um, and then there was a group of us that looked after him for the next few years, um, and hung out with him and, you know, still remained his friend like normal. So to win with him was really cool. And he's, yeah, we all know Lucas. he doesn't give a lot away, but I could see in his face that he was, he was emotional and um, couldn't believe it happened, and you know to be able to give him a hug, and just the fact that he, when I watched the footage, the effort he put in to get his arm up to try and hug me back is pretty crazy. So um yeah, what it meant to him was um, yeah out of this world, and then for that team as well. Like there was no stickers on either of those cars coming into the weekend. um Lucas and Barry Hay and that got got SP on the car, and the way we went, and you know it was um, pretty fairy tale. Type situation that they um, that we did it, and even that year, you know, we ended up in, on the podium again at Bathurst with that team, and I think I finished in the top ten at the last race for them. So it was a good year for us as a small team. So yeah, it was one that I'll never forget. And I'll say that race is as special as winning Bathurst, or yeah, Bathurst because of what it is and the way we did it. With Darth mentoring me from when I was in two thousand and seven all the way through to a Bathurst win um, is unheard of, and winning it as your first go is Crazy. Um, then also winning, you know, effectively you, your home race for one of your best friends in that situation where he's had a major accident and his whole life has been turned upside down to end up racing for him a few years later after he, he saved my career was um, pretty wild. And so it's one, yeah, you know, I thank Garth all the time for how what, what he did for me leading in and up to 2014 when then he kind of said, you know, you're on your own now, you're in the big league. Um, and then for what Lucas has done for me, getting that happen, you know, that drive and working as hard as he did with Simon McNamara to make sure they could afford to run the car to a decent level and all that kind of thing was um, pretty special. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to separate the two because one's a lot more emotionally invested because one was with my best mate who had an accident. And then the other one's with a guy who I looked up to for so long, you know, mm. um, with Garth. And he walked me through it and we got, got a win there. So it's pretty cool.
2: And we should point out for for uh, and we we always presume that our our listeners um, who are all uh, hardcore motor racing fans. For those who might not know, uh, Lucas Dumbrell was a, a driver himself. He was racing Formula Ford, as Nick mentioned in the the Sonic team, and there, he had an accident at, at Oran Park, the old Sydney circuit, which is no longer in existence, although it is part of the E-Series this year. So you do get to drive around Oran Park again. Uh, sadly, I that. Yeah, yeah, which is which is great. Uh, there was an accident, and sadly he's been left in a, a wheelchair, but he hasn't let that really slow him down. He's still the same old Lucas in many, many ways. And, of course, he had a supercar team from uh, 2010 to 2017.
0: Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and
2: then uh, and then that departed and, of course, in essence, Phil Monday carried on as, as 23 Red. Uh, one of the things I also wanted to, to cover off with you, mate, we've got such a long list here and I'll keep ploughing through. 2014, when I dig back through my memory file, or this is probably more a 2013 question, was there a chance that you could have gone to Dick Johnson Racing for 2014?
0: Yep, that is correct. So I was doing... Porsche that year.
2: So yeah, we should re- um, we should probably rewind. So you'd kind of fallen off the V8 merry-go-round a little bit. You were still in the world of V8s endurance-wise, but you'd been farmed out of Walkinshaws for the Enduros but got recalled, and you ended up in Carrera Cup. So you, you were kind of one out and one wide in a way.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting little story. It was actually good. Alberto would have a very good take on this too. So that actually stems from 2012 Bathurst, when um, I crashed us out, um, I think in my second stint, um, absolutely horrific. Um, and then I think Mike Henry was running the show then. Um, basically that was me done, um, all but sacked, um, from the red cars for Enduros and then also shut down the Super 2 program, um, which I only really found out late 2012 so um, yeah I'm sitting there with no financial backing because Walkinshaw said you know I could still do endure as a walk driver but I'll be nothing racing no racing during the year um, but then yeah myself and dad um, somehow like I think it was a week and a half two weeks before round one in Adelaide in 2013 got this Porsche program together with BRM we were an Adelaide team um with coats higher on the on the doors um and I ended up actually getting support from Rodney Jane too with Bob Jane Timard and Michelin and like we just scraped this Porsche program together to make sure I was still on the grid um we did it with minimum budget didn't do any testing and yes yeah, so i had been semi-sacked and <laughs> <laughs> was, was kind of on this little bit of a point to prove situation with them um and I don't know if anyone would really admit it, but I never, I remember it clearly of, you know, we rocked up at Adelaide. I did I'd done one day in the car before, the week before at Winton. Rocked up at Adelaide against, you know, Bairdo, Richo, Luffy, whoever else was in there that year. I threw it on pole straight away and broke the light record. Um, and the engineering group at Walkinshaw were like, why have we got rid of this bloke? Uh, and then it happened again at the Grand Prix. Um, and it was actually the era of, uh, was it Steve Hallam had just come in and Tony Dow, I reckon, might have been the era. About
2: there. And, and yeah, then I it got
0: questioned, right. again, got questioned again at the Grand Prix because, again, threw it on pole, lap record. <laughs> <laughs> and it got to the point where the, the engineers probably just kept saying, why are we not having Nick in one of our cars? Like, who's driving with Garth or JC?
2: Um, and this was the point. Had you done your deal, you were going to drive with Tony Delberto in his car, yep. the HyFlex car, which was an ex Walkinshaw, I guess it was a customer car at that stage. They had some support. So you were going to be his co driver for the Enduros, and you, I think you ended up doing the, the Friday sessions yeah. at some rounds as well.
0: Correct. So we, that was all done. They farmed me out to Tony D. Um, which, honestly, was crazy how we were going to drive together. <laughs> <It was difficult. laughs> but we made it work with the seed. And hey, hey! We'll, if, we'll... if
2: Garth and Bargs can win Bathurst together, yeah, you and Delberto should not have complained.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we, we, you know, we got it all sorted and they were really accommodating. And um, they were really – Tony and his dad and the whole team were pretty excited to have me on board. And um, I like the feel of their team. And it's actually funny. So the first co-driver session I did was at Townsville. Um, and I hadn't driven a supercar since 2012, Homebush. And I'm like, okay, this is fair break. Six months, I think, between driving one of those cars. Done Porsche racing, but hadn't done any testing and anything. You know, jumped into thing, and I think I went P2 in the co-driver pr- session, and was quicker than the red cars. And I got out the car, and the last time I did was on. Yeah, you know, the tyres weren't shit, but we did the whole session on them. We just, it was just getting miles to see if I was comfortable with that seating position and you know I had a crack at the end Um, and yeah it was really quick and I remember getting out of the car and I debriefed and then I walked around the corner because they were pitted with HRT and Steve Hallam was like "Uh, yeah you'll be with us this weekend and I was like okay that's weird don't know what that means always with you guys doing Porsche cool and then the very next week they literally pulled me out from D'Alberto's and left them high and dry (laughs) with no driver and put me back in the red car and originally I was going to be with JC Um,
2: oh really we didn't know this
0: yeah so I got I was going to be with JC and then I was in Steve Harlem's office (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was Steve I could be wrong could be turned down one of them and then they rang I thought they were ringing JC to say yep mix with you and the person who answers the other end on this freaking loudspeaker (laughs) Garth. And they're like, oh, yeah, Nick's going to be driving with you. And then I think everyone was confused. And he's like, "Uh, okay, yep, good. Yep, that's good. And I don't know, I got this feeling like he wasn't expecting that call. I didn't expect it to happen <laughs> because it wasn't what I'd been told. So, yeah, it was a bit of a interesting situation to find yourself in. So then suddenly I'm, um, you know, been sacked, rehired, absolutely shafted to Alberto and his squad. Um, in 2013, and it was myself and Murph in the two HRT cars, and um, yeah, away we, away we went kind of thing, but yeah, that was a, a very interesting period, and then during that year, I was um, trying to get into the main game, because controls it felt like I kept getting delayed, I couldn't get in, Ingle bloody wouldn't retire to drive that fourth car,
1: <laughs>
0: um, and yeah, like I saw Scotty McLaughlin get into main game. I saw Chaz get in, Scotty Pi get in, and that's when I ended up in Porsche. I'm thinking, what is going on here? Like, I'm um, why am I not getting a chance to get, you know, in the main series? And I had offers from other teams and never ever took one up. And then um, Ryan story and and Dick were quite forward in wanting me to drive with them, which was seriously cool. Like the opportunity to drive for Dick, Dick Johnson was like, I just blew my mind that you know. Um, you could go from driving at Walkinshaw, such an iconic team, to then driving to the most iconic Ford side would be um, pretty crazy and we had a long way down the track and spent a bit of time up there and um, I think it was at the Gold Coast 600, fairly confident. Um, I don't know how it played out but Ryan Walkinshaw got wind of it um, and then somehow put together this fourth car deal for me to stay at Walkinshaw and I literally had the terms of agreement with um, DJR and that this is going to be, this is how ridiculous it is. The whole time they kept saying to me, we're going to be aligned to an American team and it's going to be big. And I'm like, you need to tell me who it is. Like I, I need to know before I commit to leaving this other team who are offering me a drive now in the main series and who have got me to this point. You need to tell me who we're going to be working with. Like I need to, it's like, you know, if you want me to buy in, I need to know and they they couldn't tell me because it wasn't all agreed on and wasn't all finalised. And then I said, "Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to say WR." And um, I'm pretty sure Dick got a little bit upset with me. Oh no, he did. Ryan was pretty good, um, understood, and yeah, I still talked to them. I still tried to go get back in there after my LDM didn't. Um, but yeah, and then <laughs> I remember it all got announced at Homebush. I'm like, "You have to be kidding me! <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Why couldn't they just..." give me some hint. (laughs) so um yeah that was uh that was that but it was a long way down the track and um they were really good to to deal with and talk to and come to an agreement with and um yeah i still i think ryan does a great job story and and dick and i'll you know always in my head thank them for the opportunity that you know they were going to give me my first main game start which would have been seriously cool so yeah it was it was close um obviously a lot different outlook to what um Know, scotty mclaughlin walked into it would have been what scotty pye walked into you know a very green team trying to develop with ambrose and all that kind of thing so it would have been it wouldn't been straight into um you know what they've got now but it's still pretty cool the fact that you know i got that close to driving to, the, to djr and i didn't even know it was with penske <laughs> fantastic
2: so that's part one of our chat with nick Perkat on the vh podcast powered by timkin Stay tuned for part two. He opens up on the health scare that forced him to sit out the end of the 2015 supercar season. And he also tackles your National Motor Racing Museum, Couch Racer questions, and our traditional, well, yeah, it's a tradition now. We've done it for a while, Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. If you're enjoying the V8 Sleuth podcast, make sure to leave us a review to help spread the word. And don't forget to subscribe, because that'll ensure that you don't miss any episodes as soon as they come out. We'll be putting them out almost every week throughout 2020, even as we bunker down amid COVID-19. Now, if you're looking for a bit of reading material at home too, we've got a stock take sale in our V8 Sleuth online bookshop. If you haven't picked up a copy of Cars of the King, the magazine that documents all of Peter Brock's Bathurst 500 and his 1,000 cars, you can do it via the web. It's only $12.50. What a bargain. We'll post it out straight to you. The Falcon Files, it's only $15.00. The full documentation of 1992 to 2017, every Falcon V8 supercar built and raced, packed with info, well over 230 pages. And if you're a Craig Lowndes fan, we've got some stock left of the 2018 Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000 official book. Of course, the race won by Craig Lowndes and Steve Richards in the Auto Barn Commodore. You can head to our website, v 8 vhsleuth.com.au and click on Bookshop to snap yourself up a bargain. And sign up to our newsletter too on the VH Sleuth website while you're there. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You know all the places to find us so you don't miss out on new offers and products as they come up. Until then, we'll catch you next time on the VH Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken.
1: The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free. Cause here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't, they'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500, book now at Ticketek.